You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Today, we're all looking for ways to save. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in, then flags any hidden errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And we are now one year out from the 2024 election. We have such a great show for you today. The Washington Post's Will Somer joins us to talk about the madness sweeping through the Republican Party. Then we'll talk to Josh from the Ettingermentum newsletter about Trump and DeSantis's escalating jabs at one another. But first, we have the host of the enemies list, the Lincoln Project's own Rick Wilson. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Rick Wilson. Molly Jong Fast, I'm delighted to be with you as always. Coming to you today from beautiful Savannah, Georgia for my son's wedding week. This is a very remote little bit of interview. The two of us are both in weird places. You're in Savannah, Georgia for your son's wedding, which is the dream of every parent. Thank God. Yes, it means you've done it. Last of the children being wed, it is yeah. done. They are, they are all fully launched. They all have careers. And, and now I await but the, the army of little extra Wilsons to emerge into the world. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Rick Wilson, ready to be a grandfather. And I am in my mother's apartment cleaning it out. Very heartbreaking. So speaking of heartbreaking, I want to ask you a question I've been asking my friends on the Hill all morning. Yeah. Mike Johnson, Mega Mike Johnson, yep. is he very, very stupid or is he playing three-dimensional chess or is he eating the pieces? discuss. I have a belief that Mike Johnson is like a species of creature that I discuss periodically called dumb smart guys. He is like Ted Cruz. He is narrowly intelligent about a certain set of things that he is very driven by. 
religion. In his case, it is his cult-like dedication to a small niche of evangelical Christianity, which, I mean, look, I, I don't speak for Jesus, of course. Yeah, I do. He I might do. be at variance with some, uh, well, he's one of the brethren. <laughs> I suspect that the narrow, pinched, fanatic, bizarro world version of Christianity that Mike Johnson seems to represent is more interested in telling those biddies to get back in the kitchen and take those shoes off and have more babies <laughs> than the compassion of our Lord and Savior, if you take my meanings. But is he playing three-dimensional chess when it comes to he passed? So bipartisan support for this Israel aid package. So instead of just passing the aid package the way one would normally do it, he decides he's going to add quote-unquote pay-fors with the IRS. Of course, these offsets offset nothing. But what is going on? He offsets the cost, the 14 billion cost by cutting the IRS. Which adds the deficit. Right. That cut will lead to a $23 billion loss of tax collection from the wealthiest taxpayers. I don't think it's three-dimensional chess. I think it's actually a pretty shallow kind of feed the MAGA base play because, you know, the first thing out there is this chunk of red meat of cutting the IRS. Now, look, I guess I missed the ball here on, on how it is that you allow the hyper-wealthiest tax cheats. <laughs> it's their donor base. I missed how that was part of the freedom agenda. They already are paying a significantly lower tax rate. You and I are not exactly like your basic bitch 1040 filers. We're not like in that category where... We can do our taxes on the back of a postcard. Yeah. By the way... That was the one thing Trump ever said where I was like, now this, this I could get interested in. And by the way, there was never any follow up on that. Right. But here's the thing. The idea that he's going to cut the IRS, these are the specific programs thereafter are for these tax scoff laws and tax cheats at a very high level. And these are we're talking about people who owe tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of taxes to people like Donald Trump. And I was just going to say, there are certain people you might you might know them as America's favorite first family of fail sons, um, the Trumps. I mean, these people deserve like a 1960s TV show. They really do. Like uh, My Three Spawn or something. They're, they're just awful. Well, the problem is like you can't do a TV show with no likable characters. They'll be like, who should we root for in this? And you're like, the American people, not really. The meteor to strike all of them? Yes, but we mean that in a completely theoretical sense and a spiritual sense. And not no, I mean an actual sense. meteor plunging no, from no, space. No, no, you don't. Anyway, <laughs> moving on to things that cannot get us. So where does this go? Right now, the setup is a MAGA Mike v. Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell, I don't think you want to go against Mitch McConnell. Listen, Mitch has lost a step or three. Mitch is old, tired, and not doing well. But let me tell you, Washington, D.C. is littered with the bodies of the young and the strong who thought they would take on Mitch McConnell and win. Yeah. Paul Ryan. I mean, that whole crew is gone. The young guns. No more guns. No more young. They're out. They're now disarmed and elderly and in exile. I think there's a real argument to be made here that McConnell... As much as people find him uncomfortable or they find their ideological priors are completely different or they blame him for any number of things, if you look at Washington right now, there is a moment where Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer could actually form a ad hoc, temporary, de facto alliance. In yeah. the alliance. And honestly, I think 
from what I've seen, even among Republicans in the last in the Senate in the last couple of weeks, the normies in the Senate, and it's a it's a smaller number than it was, but they're still a plurality of the caucus. Right. They're about done with the bullshit about they don't like Mike Johnson. In fact, I, I heard from a chief of staff from one of the most conservative, not a MAGA senator, but a old mainline conservative who said Mike Johnson is absolutely poison. He is a bad guy. We're not going to play this game. We're not going to be part of the stunt casting. And in the Senate's internal business, their growing number of senators who are like, okay, we're done with Tommy Tuberville's bullshit. Which right. Now be- let's talk about Tommy Tuberville. She was a coach from Alabama. He coached at Miami for a while too. I don't know if you ever heard about Miami back then, but there are rumors that Tommy enjoyed what was on the ground in Miami back then, if you take my meaning. We're not going to touch that innuendo, but we are going to say that he is holding this up because he does not want military members to be reimbursed for travel for abortion. Right. And so he has frozen the promotions of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of members of the service. For months and months and months. We're approaching six or seven months now on it, including the Commandant of the Marine Corps, including the commander of the 3rd Marine Division, including the commanders that would be taking part in the current deployment in the Mediterranean of two aircraft carrier battle groups in the Mediterranean, and including a Marine three-star general who suffered a heart attack because he's been working literally 20 hours a day to do to do job of the commandant and the job that he's currently assigned to. And this three-star general who had the heart attack is currently in the hospital it did serve to make people like Alaska Senator Dan Sullivan and also we saw a couple of other Republicans come out really hard against Tuberville, all of them saying that this was really unfair and he was punishing the military Yes, in a crazy way. Correct. And I will say this as neatly as I can. Tommy Tuberville's agenda here is quite frankly in service only to a group of people who are in his staff that I am, I'm sort of getting some terrain on this now. There are a group of people in his staff who are these young, hyper alt-right types who are pushing this agenda. And the abortion thing is an excuse for them, not a reason. They want to cause chaos in the U.S. military. They are Bannonites. They are burn it down type. And, and what they're doing is very deliberately oriented towards trying to break the U.S. chain of command because they have a belief that the military is just chock full of these woke Marxist Soros activists, and they're going to burn it all down. It is crazy town. Here's my question. Is it his staffers? Is this like a die-fi situation where the staff is running the asylum? Because Tommy Tuberville seems like the Louis Gohmert of the Senate. He seems real dumb. Tommy Tuberville is easily overcome by inanimate objects. <laughs> Tommy Tuberville could not operate a toaster oven. Yeah, that's my thinking. He is the guy who knows how to how to coach sport ball, but that is the limit of Tommy Tuberville's knowledge, experience. And he's been given a set of talking points to go out and repeat this stuff about abortion tourism. Yeah, no one is doing abortion tourism, Tommy, you dummy. But look, the, the people that are the most thrilled by this aren't even the abortion people. People that are most thrilled by this are, are the Chinese and the Iranians and the Russians because he is kneecapping the American military. He is leaving our troops without leadership in the field. This is now to the point where 
Tommy Tuberville is a national security threat. And unfortunately, the people of Alabama, even though, by the way, everybody, he does not live in Alabama. He lives right. in the great Why state of hate? Florida. They, their joke about him being the third senator from Florida is, and, is, is actually real. He does not live in his home state. What would be the play here? They're doing a couple of these uh, appointments, you know, on a voice vote. Two yesterday, more today, more this, you know, they're going to do a bunch. But what's the play here? I mean, is there a way to go? I mean, could you change the need 60 votes to change the Senate rules. I mean, do you think there are nine Republicans who are willing to go along with like Tuberville must be stopped? Well, from what I'm told right now, there are six and I don't want to say their names because I don't think that that helps the fight right now. And I don't want any to be mobbed. Uh, I think right. there are six. I think we're very close to adding enough to get over the line. It is going to be a, a big bloodbath. I suspect that what's going to have to happen is it's going to have to happen while they're in session on the floor in, a, in like a quick march order with a very closed kind of rule that that's all that it applies to and that they're going to bring it in, sweep the, sweep the place clean and blow Tuberville away. But if the names of the, all of them were known ahead of time, Fox would start to drumbeat all that garbage. I want to go back for a minute and just talk about the House. The government is funded till November 17th. This Israel aid package is already, Schumer said, it dies in the Senate, right? It dies in the Senate. Mitch McConnell doesn't like it. Biden said he's going to veto it. So this goes nowhere. So now, does Mike Johnson now spend the next two weeks just hitting his head against the wall? Or do you think he tries something bipartisan? Look, Mike is under the same uh, problematic rule that took out Kevin. And he understands that if he crosses Gates and the rest of the pro-Russia, pro-Putin coalition. The one person motion to vacate, Matt Gates will do it again. Right. They'll vacate. They'll burn it all down again and start the clock over. Here's the moment that I think that Johnson's really going to be tested on. They don't want a spending bill. As much as they claim they don't want to do CRs, they also don't want to do an actual budget because that puts them under the spotlight and it shows exactly how much each of them is, you know, I hate spending. And then they ask for, oh, by the way, I need a bridge in my district. I need this. I need that. I need this. I need that. The problem with dedicating yourself to the forces of chaos is that when the bill comes due, everybody's looking around like who's going to take out the credit card first. And the chaos monkeys, they want the restaurant owner to come in and say, I'm calling the cops. They want the chaos. They want the blow up. They want the shit. The idea of operating the government is anathema to the radical edge of the Bannonite movement. They want to burn it down. And so what would they love to do? They'd love to burn it down, pass no aid for anybody, blame Joe Biden, call Joe Biden an anti-Semite because he wouldn't do their specific bill. It's very predictable, Molly. What's your money on a government shutdown before November 17th? Three to two odds. Pretty wow. good odds. All right. Yeah. I don't think it'll last a long time. Because Republicans are going to be blamed for this. Every time a government shutdown happens, the party in the majority is blamed for it. A hundred percent of the time. And this particular shutdown, and look, we know this for a fact. Not one of these Republicans who bleats about fiscal conservatism gives a good goddamn about the deficit. They do not right. care. When they passed a $1.7 trillion tax bill for Donald Trump, when you did the analysis of it, it benefited about 200 super high net worth individuals and families in this country. Majority yeah. of the benefit went to about 200 individuals and families and companies. And so they don't really care about it. But like back in my days as a Republican, when we talked about fiscal responsibility, I actually thought we meant it. We didn't. We meant the preservation of tax cuts for a narrow sector of the economy as a legitimate conservative, not a fake 
like fake orgasm conservative. You know, if you are going to have fiscal responsibility, it has to be applied equally to everyone. So right now, yeah. the Trump tax bill has expired. So the tiny trickle that helped the middle class in the Trump tax bill, it ages out. It's gone. It disappears this year. Right. So next year, everybody's taxes go up except for the super wealthiest. If they're willing to shut down the government so that those things can be preserved, that tells you everything about them. Just one last thing. DeSantis lips. Is this more embarrassing than Scott Walker's presidential run? Discuss. This makes Scott Walker's presidential run look like Ronald Reagan. This, this is so embarrassing. And look, I wrote a piece about this on my subset called Little Boots. This will forever be his brand. This will be the thing that he is forever remembered by, okay? This is like Ed Muskie crying in front of the press. His Dukakis in the tank. His Dukakis in the tank. Uh, and it makes Dukakis in the tank look like Churchill on the floor of Parliament blasting the Nazis. It is so beyond the valley of just embarrassing and horrible, and he will never live this down. If you were working on this campaign and you had a candidate who was wearing lifts, would you just never have let him wear lifts? I would never have let him wear lifts. There was some talk during the Bush and Gore race early on of, do you tell W to put on some higher heeled shoes or whatever? Now, W wore cowboy boots organically as a fucking Texan. Right, because he lived in Texas. And he's about, I don't know, Bush about six foot, I guess. But Gore was huge. Gore was a big, tall guy. And there's this idea that like Al Gore was going to be so tall over him on the stage. And Bush himself was like, get the fuck out of here. Come on. And ironically, this idea that you had to make DeSantis like go from 5'7 or 5'8 or 5'9, whatever the height he is, to six foot, you know, like, I'm 5'11. Okay, like every dating mm-hmm. fucking profile in America. And like uh-huh. also earlier, like, Wilson's 5'2. I'm like, yeah, I'm an actual 5'10 without fancy high heel shoes. Yeah. I love that you have to men- mention this. We are, by the way, the same height, you and I. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. 
So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Today, we're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. When I first heard about it, I thought, it's about time. This makes sense. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in for savings. Let's say you, your spouse, or kids see the doctor or other medical provider. When your claims come in, HealthLock automatically renews them and flags any errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. So you pay only what you owe. This is your money you're saving. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped members save more than $130 million. I get it. Medical billing errors can happen, but you should be able to pay with confidence. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden medical bill errors. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com. Will Somer is a reporter at The Washington Post. Welcome back to Fast Politics, my friend and yours, potentially, Will Somer. Thank you for having me. I think of you as the guy who knows what is happening in the darkest corners of the internet. I want to start by talking about a piece you just wrote because the darkest corners of the internet happen to dovetail with the Republicans in the House. Discuss. I wrote this piece during sort of the, the speakership chaos before Mike Johnson emerged as the victor. And just sort of the, this is a story about how the right wing media and the, the world of, you know, whether it's Sean Hannity's show on Fox or Steve Bannon's show, which I believe is on Real America's Voice. You know, <laughs> you, know you know Real America's Voice. <laughs> we, we all love that one. Yeah. How they sort of contribute to the chaos because it gives a, an outsized amount of power to this this kind of Matt Gatesian fringe in that they can go on Steve Bannon and show and say, this random congressman from Arkansas is not voting for Jim Jordan the way we want. So you need to call his office and pressure him. Yeah. I feel like this is Trumpism. We saw it like with death threats in 2017, 2016, 2015. Like, you know, you have to support our guy. We haven't seen like this kind of top down bullying on like procedural votes before. It's really weird. I mean, watching these shows and they would be it would be like Patrick McHenry's holding up the vote to get to the floor tonight. And then you see and, it, you know, it, it's not clear that there's a, a tie here. But then all the amount of like threats and death threats to Republican members of Congress and their and their wives who if they weren't voting for Jim Jordan. I mean, it's it, as far as I know, I mean, it, it, it's unheard of, certainly since the modern era, that the average sort of grassroots activist would be this involved in in whether the vote is going to the floor tonight night or tomorrow. 
Right. Is this a sort of interest in governance? Are these people more interested in the nuts and bolts of the federal government? This cannot be. No, I don't think it's that. I don't think it's that everyone got the almanac of American <laughs> politics for Christmas and now they're, they're all fired up. No, I think it's that the speaker's race, like so many other things, has been sort of subsumed into the, the rights culture war within itself. And because really, you know, someone like Steve Scalise is not all that different from someone like Jim Jordan ideologically. But you know, it, it's sort of this attitude and it's this idea that Jim Jordan was willing to risk it all in a way that Steve Scalise was not. And so you have someone like Steve Bannon who really wants to, I think, feel that he had his role in this process. So he riles up what he calls the war room posse to go, you know, deluge the, these congressmen with calls. And ultimately, that side did succeed because they got this really far right wing guy in Mike Johnson to be the speaker. Yes. So Mike Johnson looks like Paul Ryan, but he acts like Sidney Powell. And (laughs) this is my takeaway, but I feel like you've looked at him from a different angle. So I'm going to tell you my hot take and then you're going to tell me why I'm wrong or perhaps I'm right, but uh, I might get more out of being wrong. This is a guy who was a religious zealot, Christian extremist, then in 2020 saw an opportunity by writing this amicus brief to get involved with trying to overturn the election for our man, not mine, but his man, (laughs) Donald Trump, then has become a sort of right wing media fever pitch kind of guy. Is that what this is or is that, am I wrong? Yeah, no, I mean, I I think that's more or less like right on. This is a guy who was basically a backbencher. Very few people were aware of this guy who comes from a real like Christian nationalist background, a lot of anti-gay stuff in his past, a lot of just this idea that, you know, America is like a very affirmatively Christian nation, that that is sort of key to what it is to be American. And then he emerges from, you know, relative obscurity in 2020. He sort of came up with what was sort of the thinking election denial, right? And so, you know, on one hand, you have someone like Sidney Powell or Mike Lindell, who's ranting and raving and saying, you know, a supercomputer stole the election or Dominion did it. And I I believe Mike Johnson got a little bit of the Dominion stuff. But his idea was, well, what if we say the election has to be overturned because certain states changed their election laws in ways we don't like to allow, you know, more mail-in voting, perhaps, or early voting. People might notice this. When Republican members of Congress who are not, like, really on the fringe of the fringe, when they're asked, do you think the election was stolen? They'll say, well, I think there were a lot of like weird voting law changes. And it's like, well, that's not what anyone means by the election was stolen. <laughs> right, yeah, the right, laws right, changed right, and you didn't right, like it. Right. You know, <laughs> we're talking about like mail trucks full of fake ballots rolling up and stuff like that. But in this case, so yes, he sort of came up with the polite version of trying to steal the election. It is interesting because the election thing, the fake, the fake electors lying about the election, which has become the Republican Party line, that really was something that was dreamed up in the sort of fever swamp that you, I'm sorry to tell you, I still consider you to be a person who lives in. I do. I love it, Molly. I have a high tolerance for it. Are you surprised at how well that lie took and how much it sort of 
of groaned the mainstream or did you sort of expect this? I mean, honestly, yeah. I mean, even as someone who has really been up, up at, at sort of the, the right of the face of all this action, I mean, every step of the way, I've been surprised with how the Republican Party has really allowed these conspiracy theories, including election denial, to really fester. I mean, I, I remember on election night when Trump got up and said, well, I didn't lose and they stole it. And I thought, oh, geez, it's something that you could have seen coming, but still felt like a like a real crossing the Rubicon moment. And then at each step as, as the GOP really welcomed that in. And now it's really, you know, the mainstream line. I mean, taking it back to Mike Johnson, we saw that after his um, at the press conference where he was asked, you know, after he was selected as their nominee, after he was asked, do you still think the election was stolen? I mean, it's something they don't really want to address because they know the base thinks the election was stolen and Trump does. But they realize that the average person thinks that's crazy. And so when the reporter asked that, then everyone goes, oh, shut up. You know, hey, you know, what a rude thing to bring up. Yeah, that was incredible, I have to say, because it did feel like they have a problem, right? They have this problem, which is the thing that the base loves alienates the mainstream voter. Yeah, exactly. And and I mean, that's something that you see over and over is that I mean, certainly saw in the speaker's race was this idea that the person the base wants, who is just this, like, like someone like Jim Jordan, who's, you know, most famous for just like owning liberals in his viral videos and hearings, that's not going to appeal to the average voter. But, you know, they're, they're kind of locked in this thing. I mean, it's the same thing we're seeing with Trump. And, and honestly, I think the genius of getting Mike Johnson is that he's a guy very few people, even in the Republican Party, knew about and that he has a very bland name. And so, I mean, I, I think that it, it is sort of a name that goes in and out of your head. So it makes it hard for people to think, uh, you know, a name like McCarthy, Scalise, even Jim Jordan is a name that I think sticks with people more. So he's like a bit more of an enigma to the average voter. Yeah, it's funny because it's like I think about, you know, just strategically, if I were a Democratic strategist, which I'm very much not, I would be nervous about Republicans picking someone like a Tom Emmer. Or even a Steve Scalise, who's very right wing, but like sort of affable and likable and not too crazy. Even though in my heart of hearts, I want them to pick someone like that so government can work. It seems like it would help them more in this election season to pick someone normal who you could have out there on the stump, seeming like Republicans hadn't lost their goddamn minds. But they absolutely did not have any interest in that person. No, no, exactly. I mean, like, like I said, I mean, it, when I looked at sites like the Gateway Pundit or when I watched T. Bannon's show, I mean, there is a sense that, you know, and, and this is how sort of the, the GOP's activist fringe has managed to drive the party, you know, at least since the Tea Party movement, is that they just want it more and they're more intense. And, you know, the moderates end up folding as they did. You know, I mean, this was this idea that with Jim Jordan, the moderates were so concerned because they didn't want an election denier and all this stuff. And then you get Mike Johnson, who's one of the architects of trying to steal the election. They go, oh. Okay. So let's talk for a minute about what happens on Steve Bannon's show. I'm a little bit obsessed with Steve Bannon's show because it is, I, I mean, I want you to explain to us like how many people watch it and why it, it seems to be setting the agenda on some, and again, I don't want the, to say anything nice about Steve Bannon here, except I'm going to say one nice thing about Steve Bannon, which is he's very smart. A lot of these people are very stupid and who sort of fall into this, like a Sean Hannity. But this guy is actually quite smart, which is why he's so dangerous. 
discuss. Yeah, I mean, like, look, this is a guy who certainly loves to participate in his own self-mythologizing. But, you know, he is a very active player. I mean, he's he's in D.C. I think his studio is in Capitol Hill. So it's very close by for members of Congress like Matt Gates who want to swing by. And I mean, he was very engaged during the speaker's race and saying, uh, you know, t- telling the, you know, it's called War Room. You know, he has members of Congress. He has sort of a rotating cast of sort of like Trump administration leftovers who come on and are sort of, you know, hawking their own things. One thing I think is interesting about Bannon is he's a guy who's willing to try to sort of make new issues on the right. Like he he was a big activist against transhumanism. So the idea that, you know, we're going to merge with robots. And so he's been really like pushing that. And it, it may not still be the case, but on his website, the big issues, it was it used to say election, pandemic and transhumanism. He's really sort of a pioneer in these ideas. Right. Matt Gates has emerged as the reason why Kevin McCarthy is not the Speaker of the House anymore. What do you think a Matt Gates's endgame is? And why do you think Matt Gates was so set on removing McCarthy? It is interesting. I mean, you know, perhaps his endgame, I mean, there's talk that he wants to run for a governor of Florida. He does seem to love getting attention and, and power, like many politicians, I guess. I mean, we all remember that, you know, he grew up in the Truman Show house where the Truman Show was filmed. And so he's a quirky guy, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But, you know, I, I think there was like some personal enmity in the fact that he just sort of wanted ahead. Because as you said, I mean, it doesn't really make a ton of sense to get rid of Kevin McCarthy and then throw the GOP into chaos for a month. But at the same time, he was also, you know, reportedly very mad that McCarthy had allowed this ethics investigation into him and so that he, you know, he wanted to take him out for that. It is just incredible stuff. There seems to be like a schism between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. Oh, yeah. Well, this is a very intense schism. Yeah. How did this happen? Sure. So, I mean, you know, you, you hate to see two QAnon believers <laughs> yeah. fight. Just but hate to they, see it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you have two women with sort of like outsized personal lives as well. I think this dates back to when McCarthy was first getting elected as speaker. And I think Marjorie Taylor Greene seems to have figured, well, there's an advantage for me in cutting a deal with McCarthy and being one of his lieutenants rather than fighting him in some that he's eventually going to win. And Boebert chose the opposite side, teamed up with Matt Gates, And then throughout, we then see, uh, I believe my colleague, my former colleague, Zach Patrizzo at the Daily Beast had some reporting. I mean, this got to the point that they had an argument in the women's room, one of the restrooms at the Capitol, uh, where they were kind of, you know, really getting intense with each other. And so, I mean, this is like a very legit and ongoing feud. And I, I believe there were some some tweets about it. I mean, so it, it is interesting because, you know, from the outside, they you would think of them as very similar politically um, and temperamentally. But I think Marjorie Taylor Greene has proved herself to be sort of a more adept political player. Because if we think about Lauren Boebert, she's kind of playing second fiddle to Matt Gates and, and that whole crew. She's kind of part of this crew that includes like Paul Gosar and Louis Gomer and all, all these <laughs> characters. Marjorie Taylor Greene's kind of on her own path. And also, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene does not have a video of herself getting a little wild at Beetlejuice, right? right. And, and, and so I think that shows some more wisdom as well. By the way, a terrifying conversation that, that shows more wisdom. But I do know what you're saying. I mean, it does seem likely that Lauren Boebert is going to lose her seat. Yeah, she barely got it last year, 2022. And she really only has added on more and more scandal since then. And so, I mean, we'll have to see. I mean, it's not looking great, I would say. In the House, besides those two, you have this new speaker, 
Then you have sort of the kind of Ken Buck v. the crazies. Talk about that dynamic, because it seems like Ken Buck is the uh, Mitt Romney of the House. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you you have this situation where you have Ken Buck and a, and a few other members of Congress or Republicans who just seem to be really fed up with it. And, you know, and like Mitt Romney, now Ken Buck says he w- won't w- run for re-election, right? And so I think, like Romney, Buck appears to have realized, you know, geez, like the, cra- the crazies really are in control of this party. And it's not going to be fixed anytime soon. And it's just calling it quits. Yeah. It seems like there's a MAGA crew in the Senate that is Ted Cruz, J.D. Vance, and sort of, are you seeing that? And what does that look like? Yeah, sure. I mean, J.D. Vance, Josh Hawley, right? I mean, in the case of J.D. Vance, certainly he's sort of the hero of of what a lot of young Republican activists call the new right, which is to say sort of a proto-fascist, right? And that is very focused on, if you think about the difference between them and maybe, you know, your more traditional hard right Republican, is that they feel the young folks and J.D. Vance feel that the previous set was did not crush their enemies enough. <laughs> um, and so that's why they love or loved Ron DeSantis, because they saw him as someone who, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, strip Disney World down plank by plank, stuff like that. But then, you know, we've already seen a lot of that movement implode, at least in this election cycle. I mean, Ron DeSantis did awfully. Nate Hockman, who is this young hero of the new right, he joined the DeSantis campaign and then got fired for making the video with the Nazi symbolism. <laughs> you know, it's we funny. I, I, laugh I don't because Nazi symbolism <laughs> is not funny. And none of this is funny, but it is also just so stupid. It's amazing. It's so crazy. Like, why would you? Yeah, you know, let's just put, I mean, it's how internet addled these guys are and how within their own universe they are that they're like, well, why don't we just slip this son and rad in and we're going to have kind of these like DeSantis stormtroopers marching. That'll be fine. I I don't think anyone will mind that. And so that is sort of the movement that J.D. Vance is seen as this hero of, that these are the people who who call for an American Caesar, right? Because you can't. If you say an American Hitler or American Mussolini, people won't like that. But you can say, oh, I like I like Caesarism, right? Yes, Caesarism. That's great. I have sort of one last question for you, which is the people who went on DeSantis world, because there was a sort of schism, right? People, a lot of Trump people, not a lot, but some Trump people went off to DeSantis world. Can they come back to Trump world or is it over for them? I think it depends. I think it depends how aggressive some of them were. I mean, you have people like the guys on Twitter, like John Cardillo, Dave Reboy, these kind of like bald muscle men, middle-aged guy types in Florida. These guys who just really like jousted with the sort of the the MAGA diehards, the your Laura Loomer types, your like these these people who I mean, they will die for Trump. And that's what DeSantis doesn't have, is that he doesn't have these people who are willing to just look like absolute buffoons for him. And so so for those guys, I think it's, I mean, I don't think they're they're coming back to Trump land. I think they have to become never Trump guys, but not in like a Lincoln project way. Like, like I don't know if there's going to be the DeSantis project afterwards right. for those guys <laughs> to, so that they could like find a living. I mean, because really they, they're stuck. And so the New York Times had a story recently about the DeSantis efforts to sort of take over the, the MAGA social media universe and just how badly they imploded. And this idea, I mean, you see these tweets where I can't remember exactly what, just recently they were like, it's been X number days since Donald Trump had a flub. This is the new flub counter. Right, and it's right. like, oh, brother. You know, it, it reminds me of when when, when Chris, Christie was like, I call him Donald Duck. And it's like, you know, there were so many meetings about it and it just dies. 
I call him Donald Duck. Uh, Will Sommer, always a delight. We'll never call you Donald Duck. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot, Molly. Thank you. Josh is the editor of the Ettinger Mentum newsletter. Welcome to Fast Politics, Ettinger Mentum whose real name is Josh. And we're interviewing you today. I'm a subscriber and a fan. I wanted to talk to you. You've been really chronicling this incredible Republican. Is it a primary? It feels like it's not even a primary. No, not really. I haven't written about it since like, I think August. I wrote like a series on DeSantis and I uh, kind of officially said his bid was dead when I started it. I titled it The Art of Losing. And it was, that was like back in June. And uh, by the time like I wrote, like um, I was like a couple months into it, I was already like, this is kind of over, I'm kind of sick of this. But I finished that. I gave kind of like my opinion on him in that series. But I haven't, I don't think I've read about the primary since then. I think it's kind of settled that Trump has won it. It's pretty embarrassing. They're, they're still going through with it. But like I have that series that I did on it, but everything else is kind of just looking at Republicans more generally after that. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But I was talking to a friend of mine who's a journalist, and he was saying, a straight news journalist, and he was saying he has to go to Miami for the debate. And I was like, oh, my God, they are still having Republican debate. Yeah, I saw like DeSantis responding to like some news stuff the other day, and it's like, oh, I forgot he was still alive. Yeah, it's really weird. By the way, he just fell down that Scott Walker hall, right, where it's just... If you're a completely uncharismatic person, you should not run for president. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I'm still thinking now, like, how to write a post mortem for that campaign. If he could have done anything differently, that it could have had a different result. Because he was polling very well in the winter earlier this year, but that obviously completely fell apart. And it's strange looking back, like, why that was even the case back then, what people kind of saw from him and what they expected him to be. I think if he wanted to have a chance of like putting in a decent showing, he had to be a lot more anti-Trump than he actually was. He really tried to appeal to everybody, but ended up just alienating everybody. This is like the fundamental problem that a lot of these Republicans had. It's like the primary numbers were like Trump and everybody else. So if you were going to be a never Trump candidate, right, you could be a never Trump, not the way Mitt Romney is never Trump, but the way Ken Buck is never Trump, right? They're similar, but but you're going to stay in it. In 2020, 2019, Democrats basically cleared the field. They were like, Joe Biden may not be my first choice, but he is a candidate that reads like a white guy who can win. Yeah, he had the best numbers. I was a Bernie supporter back then, but like even then I was kind of like looking at the polling there as like making a calculated risk because like Bernie and Biden always pulled the best versus Trump. It was like they always led by seven or eight points and Biden led by like a point higher than him. So like for my personal calculation, like, oh, I think that Bernie like um will be a better president than him. So I'm willing to take that risk of one or two percent because they're leading by so much. But like I wasn't under any illusions that Biden was the most wasn't the most electable at the time. But like the calculation that that was the main thing to prioritize. Like it made sense. Like from some perspectives, he seemed the most electable to you, right? He was probably. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because it's like I mean I just was like as a Jew I was like we're never gonna have a Jewish president. No, it's so sad. <laughs> it was like I like Bernie a lot, but like the idea that we would have someone who literally looks like one of my relatives as president like seemed impossible. It was so cool. He felt like like he had the accent of everything. He kind of he had the attitude. Yeah, no, 
I mean, he's like Larry David. So the calculus was like, this is the guy. He may not be your first choice, but he can win. I mean, why couldn't Republicans do that with a Nikki Haley or someone? I mean, I'm not saying yeah, they should. DeSantis would have made the most sense to do that. DeSantis actually had an incredible 2022. I really like if people don't know, recognize me or know my stuff. Really, my um, I first got attention because I was one of the people who said that there was not going to be a red wave in 2022. I said right. the Democrats were in a lot stronger position. It wasn't like the toughest call to make. There were a lot of like sides pointing that way, but it was surprisingly uncommon for people to say that. So I was very vocal in that, and that got me some attention, which is kind of where I am now. And I was very down on how all the Republicans performed everywhere. But DeSantis did undeniably well. Like right. winning by 20 points in Florida is impressive. He won like Miami and Palm Beach County. That's like not like nothing. That's really, those are good numbers. And none of the other candidates in the race really have that kind of record, but they all kind of ran anyway. I think it was a mix of like, they genuinely saw this as like one of their last chances to do something they always planned to and just went through it out of muscle memory. Right. Are they just trying to get a position in Trump's cabinet, which I think is the case for some of them. I think definitely for Vivek, although things look, look a little dicier for him than they did like a couple months ago. So he had to do, DeSantis had, first off, if he was a good politician, he would have been able to clear the field like that. It would have, right. that's just a prerequisite. Like you need to get people out of the race to promise them whatever you show them the reality. He's just not like, good at that nuts and bolts stuff. He never really has been, if you look at like my series on him. He wasn't connecting with like backbenchy Florida Congress people. Had he wanted to work that, he could have, you know, had people at the governor's mansion. I mean, there just was, he was not good at the vote whipping part of politics. Yeah. Nuts and bolts stuff, not like not even ideological, just right. like basic competency things. Yeah. The one story that always sticks with me is when he flew up to D.C. to meet with a bunch of these Republicans and like representatives from Florida because he was kind of having a cold war of endorsements with Trump that he lost very decisively. Um, but this yeah. was in the early stages of that. And he met with these like congressmen in this like hotel for several hours. And those people came out and they said, we endorse Trump. So yeah. he actively did <laughs> yes. it, like made them go away from him from spending that effort. And it's something you can see just across his entire career. The more people see of him, the less they like him, except in Florida, I guess. They're just weird. Some of what happened in Florida is that the Democratic Party fell off a cliff and they ran a guy who was probably one, a uniquely bad candidate, right? He had been a Republican. Yeah, Christ was pretty poor. Both elections, they ran pretty poor candidates. Gillum in 2018 got a lot of attention, but... uh Looking back on it, he was actually under like FBI investigation during the campaign, which might not have been ideal. And he still only narrowly lost. Christ was just very, very poor. DeSantis, like most incumbent governors across the country were popular. DeSantis wasn't unique by any means of uh, having a strong year last year. I think Whitmer actually had better numbers than him relative to how the country was leaning. Yeah. But nobody really ever talks about that because uh, the media is sexist and they hate Whitmer. I want to talk about that for a minute because this is like a peccadillo of mine, obviously, daughter of a second wave feminist. Like, this is something uh -huh. I think about a lot. Why is it that women politicians, here's Whitmer, she reads, and again, I'm going to say something that people are not going to like, but I think it's right. She reads in the least feminine way. She plays up her sort of ability to seem like a quote unquote normal politician, if that makes sense. Yeah, like her fix the damn roads, the kind right. of uh, yeah, very she, kind of masculine, masculine vulgar language. Masculine energy. Very 
very careful, almost was the victim of an enormously scary, violent crime. Very fucking tough. Tough, tough, tough. And still really gets all of the sexism. Yeah, people just generally don't take that seriously. But also because she did know when to shift gears when it benefited her. When Dobbs came out, she was really the one politician in the country who did the most to engineer that to her benefit. She campaigned relentlessly on abortion. She defined her opponent as an anti-abortion extremist. She was like spearheading an effort to get an abortion referendum on the ballot at the same time as her. So she wasn't like afraid to run away from that issue. She saw it as successful and she really did it like more better than anybody else in the country. I think across the entire state, Michigan shifted blue compared to 2020. It wasn't just her. She carried everybody across the line and got obviously got her trifecta from it. So it was a uniquely like just well-managed state party campaign there that I think uh, got kind of overlooked because people just said, oh, generally Democrats did well. Some Democrats did well, some did better than others, and she was definitely on the higher end of that. It sounds like it was the opposite of New York State. Yeah, exactly. Give me the TLDR on 2028. I'm sorry, don't get, nobody get mad at me. But who do you see as strong? I read a piece in one of those political magazines that was like, Uh, anxious 2028. Did you see that? Candidates are buying in case they can manage to get, who do you like for 2028? Oh, well, I wrote like a list of this, actually. I know, it's that's like my I'm most viewed you. one. I don't want to go through everything, but I have yeah. um, Whitmer as the highest there by far. I think she's kind of in a tier of her own. If you're like a left winger, she's not really anything totally new from what you've seen from Democrats before. She's right. very much a mainstream liberal. But like really any analysis of her, like kind of my take on it is that she's a liberal who can definitively win. Yeah. Like in terms of electability, Nobody really has her track record. She has a history of using the power that she got through her savvy electoral sort of uh, approach for like very positive legislative gains in a very tough legislative environment. She has one seat majorities in both of the state houses there and was has been able to repeal right to work. I think codify Obamacare. I think she did that two days ago. Uh, codify Roe v. Wade in Michigan. Just a, a, like a very tremendously productive year they've had there. So I don't think really anybody else has the combination of executive experience and demonstrated political competency that she has. Warnock, I think, was a Georgian. I um, have always been a fan of him. I'm still surprised that he's won not like two, but basically four elections. (laughs) Poor Warnock. Yeah, he's had to work so hard. I saw him like at a rally one time. He looked so tired. I told him he was going to win. So and I was right. So (laughs) that was a fun little moment. He has really had to work it, though. Let me ask you, when you look at this sort of speakership battle, were you surprised? Tell me, I mean, I feel like they just had a moment where they like, we can't embarrass ourselves anymore. We just have to pick whoever it is. Yeah, that was my most uh, recent article about U.S. politics. I called it just good old fashioned political failure. That wasn't everybody wants to chalk it up like, oh, Washington's dysfunctional. Washington can get can get anything done. That was beyond that. In, in all of these instances, you just have these kind of cases of Republicans being really like just stupid beyond like an ideological level. The conclusion I kind of came to when I was writing about this and like finishing that piece was we're used to Republicans being evil or bad, like pushing evil and bad policies. And we can still fear them because evil and bad people can be very competent and savvy. Right. But this new Republican Party isn't like they're not just bad, but they're also dumb. And so it's not just their policies are bad. Their policies are just stupid. And when you believe in enough stupid policies, 
eventually you just become stupid yourself. Right. And you get to a point where you're like Jim Jordan and you're like having your supporters send death threats to the people who won't vote for you and blaming them for that and embarrassing yourself on a national stage. Are you Steve Scalise and you're at the apex of your career and you can't even articulate why you should be speaker? Are you Tom Emmer and God just hates you and you have to drop out after four hours? It's not even like that they just believe in bad things or that they're not popular. They're just personally stupid to the point where they can't even selfishly seek power the way that they used to be able to. We keep finding them sort of unable to deliver for them besides their voters for themselves. Yeah, that's the difference because it used to be that these guys could personally benefit from being in power. Now they just can't really accomplish anything. Yeah. This is like the thing I think about a lot is here we are we have this guy. He doesn't know how to do the speaker job at all. He's hired two people from Fox News to be in his team, right? He didn't hire like... He's a total hick dumbass. I can say this <laughs> as a Southerner. He's just like is really just one of those stupid people that you see who are involved in right-wing politics. Were this me, and I woke up one day and was like, holy shit, I'm the Speaker of the House. I'm completely unprepared for this job. I have no idea who anyone is. I cannot whip votes. Nobody knows who I am. I just met Mitch McConnell. (laughs) This is like America's worst anxiety dream. Wouldn't you just hire all of the smart people who worked for McCarthy, who is also a moron? Like, wouldn't you- Yeah. Instead of pulling out people from Fox News, I mean, what's the thinking here? I think the one thing with Mike Johnson that makes him particularly important here is that he genuinely believes in, like, God and thinks that, like, he's fulfilling some kind of large... Like, he's a young Earth creationist. He thinks that the Earth is 6,000 years old. He genuinely believes in this stuff. And when he won, he probably thought, like, well, that's probably just because God is rewarding me for all the other stuff that I did before. So I imagine he has a tremendous level of confidence where he thinks he's being divinely rewarded for being a massive homophobe for his entire life. And he's just thinking like, well, this is going well. Why don't I just continue with what I'm doing? The thing is, what he was doing before was at a really low level. And when you're at this higher stage, you have to be very tactful in what you say and very like measured and strategic. So he's just going out there and saying like, oh, yeah, Joe Biden, this guy who I'm going to have to work with for the next year. Right. Uh, I think he's senile. <laughs> right. I'm just going to personally insult him. Yeah, not brilliant. Yeah, I'll pass the Israel aid that everybody supports if uh, you let us uh, take money away from the IRS so rich people cannot pay taxes. And then that gets revealed to cost more money than it'll save. It's just like a baseline level of incompetence there that makes you really realize why this guy was like a last ditch choice. Yeah, I think that's right. You think he's able to stick around? Just the Israel aid stuff. I think there are people in the Senate who believe they can put together a package and then bring it back to the House and get the bipartisan vote. I mean, are Republicans willing to die on this hill? They love Israel. Yeah, I don't think so. The question will be, I think, if it's going to be a combined Ukraine-Israel package or if they're going to be split. And the Ukraine stuff is obviously like a lot more contentious in terms of passing than the Israel stuff is. The offsetting it is completely dead on arrival. It's politically unpopular. That's just a complete stunt. It looks embarrassing. Yeah. So that's dead on arrival. So what, what was the point of doing that? He's just not, it's like what I said, like these guys believe in dumb stuff. And at a certain point, they just are kind of dumb themselves. Like they live in an echo chamber. They think that everybody thinks the way that they do. And they misinterpreted the reason why they wanted the past. And they think that just doing far right stunts is like going to get people interested. And like when Jim Jordan said, according to Politico, that like he was trying to threaten Lisa and he said, America wants me. I think he sincerely thinks that America does want him because like, do you think these guys are looking at like what normal people think? 
they're just looking at like their supporters. They have a bunch of yes men around them. And they're kind of atrophying into a party that would be one that you'd expect to be organized around Trump, which is just not very competent. Thank you. And now your moment of fuckery. Rick Wilson. Yes. I'm here for all your fuckery needs. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a moment of fuckery? You know, I have a moment of fuckery from Thursday, watching Eric Failson absolutely uh, the shit best. the bed for the Trump family. The best. Watching the best. him absolutely lose his mind and blow it on the stand. You had to know that in Donald Trump's head, like everything was validated at that moment about how shittily he treats Eric. Because Eric literally could not have made a dumber set of statements in the course of that appearance. Although the, the secondary moment of fuckery that's coming is Ivanka has to testify. <laughs> He's going to struggle with a set of feelings of, of betrayal, hatred, and arousal all at once. <laughs> I have to say that the Ivanka, she gets my moment of fuckery because she said she couldn't testify during the school week. I have three children. They do go to school, but she moved to Miami. It's not very far from New York. That's like a two-hour flight. You could theoretically... And, you know, I don't know if you know this, but her father has a lot of real estate in New York. She could fly that. on his plane and be back for dinner the next night. I would be remiss if I failed to mention that Ivanka has an army of nannies, cooks, gardeners, drivers, house servants, ladies' maids, underbutlers, butlers, the entire Downton Abbey-esque constellation of household staff. And give me a break. We think that Ivanka does not need to take the school week off from testifying. Right. Yeah. And if you think Ivanka is sitting at home with a little Kushner Sprogs saying, okay, honey, have you finished all your homework? No. They have some sort of staffer in-house to deal with that. I for you. So that is our moment of fuckery. That is a glorious, glittering moment of Trumpian fuckery. Thank you, Rex. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Today, we're all looking for ways to save. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in, then flags any hidden errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com. 
Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.